Well, I think I got it all cried out of me, but we'll see. So good morning. Great to see everybody. Uh, May I encourage you, if you're new here and no one has taken the time to say hi because we've missed you, we would sure love to uh, say hi to you. So please introduce yourself. We've got Bibles in case you need them. Pastor Leon and Ken will be passing them out. Just raise your hand. That would be great. Uh, As was mentioned, uh, we're in a Lent series themed Giving Up, and today's is Giving Up Your Enemies. At MacAv, our desire is not just for knowledge, but it's for wisdom. And so if you have a pertinent question related to what we're discussing, please raise your hand and we'll address it. If it's something that, you know, maybe is a little bit more personal that we can talk about afterwards, that would be fine. Um, One other aspect is, in my mind, as I've been preparing this message, it all makes sense. All my transitions work well for me, but that's just in my mind. So in part of the question answering, if I miss something, you guys don't understand a transition that I've made or there's a question in that aspect, I'd really encourage you guys to do so because, again, it makes sense to me, but it might not be for you guys. So let's open up in prayer. Boy, Lord, you are great. You are our Prince of Peace. You're the great I am. Lord, and it's in pure humility and wonder that we're even able to approach your throne as we do right now. But your word says to come boldly before the throne of grace to find help in time of need. And Lord, I'm in need right now. Lord, your word needs to be clear to the congregation how to love our enemies. So, Father, in Jesus' name, as we come before you, we do so, Lord God, with open ears, with hearts that have been made soft by your Holy Spirit, by the Word, by your Holy, Holy Spirit. Prepare the soil of our hearts, Father God, that we might receive this engrafted Word to grow, that our minds would be transformed, that they would be renewed, Lord God, that they would be washed in the Word. Jesus, you are our great high priest. You are our great captain of our salvation who experienced great suffering, Father. May we embrace that as readily as you did. May your word be clear today, Father, in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So, Betty and I have been here about two and a half years, and there's been a couple of things that have been reoccurring themes from the pastors that have really... Um, assisted me as tools in understanding the scriptures and making sure we gain proper perspective. And one of them that Pastor Russ mentions numerous times is the 30,000 view elevation that he calls us to. You guys have heard him say that, but instead of looking specifically at an object where you're never going to be able to see the whole perspective, we go up to 30,000 feet to look over it, that we can gain perspective and that we can gain context of what we're discussing So we're going to do that today. You guys need to be paying attention to that. The other thing that Pastor Russ has talked about numerous times is putting on first century glasses, again, to gain perspective and to gain context of the things we're discussing. I'm going to change that up a little bit, and I'm going to ask you, if, if all of us went down to Jefferson Avenue right now and I said to one of you, hey, what kind of shirt is that guy wearing that's standing on the top of the General Motors building? 
you'd look at me and say, but I, I can't see that. So then I hold out to you a microscope and a telescope. Which one of those are you guys going to take? Okay, so that you can gain long-term perspective, right? I'm going to ask you guys to put on the glasses of eternity today because the idea of loving our enemies just doesn't make sense if we're just talking about the here and now. makes no sense whatsoever. We need to have eternal-minded glasses so that we can see the perspective of what Christ is talking to us about. Now, I could talking about loving your enemies. I could tell you today about Corey Tinboom, a Holocaust survivor whose father and sister were killed while they were in uh, prison camp, and how upon meeting one of the guards who was directly responsible for her father and her sister's death, you know, just anger and bitterness welled up within her, and yet she asked the Lord, "Lord, give me grace." And she welcomed this guy who was specifically responsible for the deaths of her loved ones. But we're not going to do that. I could tell you about Elizabeth Elliot, who, if you guys have ever heard of her, as a young bride, lost her husband and a couple of his missionary buddies as they were trying to share the gospel with some natives in South America, and they were speared to death. I mean, as a new bride. And she ended up meeting the guy who speared her husband to death And he had become a believer. But we're not going to talk about that. We're going to talk about a little bit different perspective. So I need your help, because you guys know I usually ask questions. What is the singular most important reason for God giving mankind the law? I need you guys to answer it. I'm not going to answer it for you. What do you guys think? What's the singular most important reason? Betty. Safe, to keep us safe how? Okay. Anybody else? Anne? So we can see our sin. Okay, I'm going to choose door number two. But Good answer, toots. But <laughs> So did you guys hear what she said? Say it again, Anne, nice and loud. So we can see our sin. The main thing that the law did, and there's a little addendum to that, is point us to Christ. Without our sin, we don't need a Savior. So it shows us very clearly we're unable to keep that. It points us to our incapability, which naturally then points us to Christ of the Scriptures. So it points to Messiah, and it points to our utter weakness. Okay, similar question. Why do we preach the cross? Why do we preach the cross? Somebody other than Anne. Okay. Okay, what else? Uh, Martha, said, say it again. Okay, to show us how we get to the solution. So the cross is the solution. And again, in a similar manner, I would say that the cross shows us the utter inability of us to attain to that. So much so that a God had to die in order to satisfy the justice required by a holy God. Now, you'll notice I say, a God. I'm not saying any God, but I'm saying the ginormity of our sinfulness made it that a God, the creator of the universe, had to die. That blows my mind. 
when you think about how gigantic that is. It shows man that our failure is so overwhelming that a God had to die in order to satisfy the justice required by a holy God against his enemies. Who's his enemies? We are. So my next question for you guys, and I need specific examples, so you guys got to get out of this shy mode, okay? And, and speak up loud. How did Jesus interact with his enemies? Name me some specific times. Caleb, give me one. Now, give me a specific time when he interacted with his enemies. Maybe when he did that. Okay. Matt said when he was on the cross, he asked, he asked the God, the Father, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. Ken? When Peter cut his ear off. Okay. Okay. Um, and what did he do? What did Jesus do? Jesus healed him, put his ear back on. Great one. I forgot about that one. Uh, no kissing, Sam. Sam? Okay. And? Okay, when Satan tempted Jesus, he responded with Scripture. Okay, anybody else? Sarah? Okay, so every, every time, you know, in, when he was in conversation with the Pharisees, he called them brood of vipers. That's a great one. We're going to use that because that's something that goes right along. Andrew, did you have one? Somebody back there? No? Gary? Nice and loud, bud. Okay. All right, when they were beating his back. And do you remember what he did? Well, he didn't say anything. Actually, what he didn't do, Gary, is he didn't say anything. But that's a great example. Thanks for bringing that up. Pastor? Okay. <laughs> okay, so, so there's a couple others. When he, when he overturned the tables in the temple, okay, he just flung those things. Uh, you guys brought up the rest of them. Those were very good. Oh, one last one. Think about when he dipped his hand in the bowl with Judas. I mean, that was like a an intimate act to be sharing dinner with someone and to share it with your enemy and to dip your hand in, the same, that, in that same bowl. So love has a couple of components, at least. One is the heart that is either wicked or regenerate, and the words or the actions that follow from the type of heart. Good fruit comes from a good heart. Bad fruit from a bad heart. Do you guys know that love does not always turn the other cheek? And do you guys know that it doesn't always go the extra mile? Let me ask you a question. Back to Sarah. Sarah, did did Jesus try to woo the Pharisees afterwards and say, Hey guys, you know, like maybe we had a misunderstanding. Come on back and let's... No, not even close, right? Okay, now, now this next one is not his enemy, but what about the rich young ruler? The rich young ruler turned on and walked away. And what happened? Man, Jesus was sorrowful because this guy had it going, but obviously not enough. Again, he didn't say, hey, bud, come on back. Maybe you misunderstood. Let's have a conversation about that. He let them both go their separate ways. Now, we can be absolutely certain that Jesus acted completely in love in each of the things that we've discussed about that you guys have brought up. One more time. How was love expressed in those circumstances? 
And here I think we've got to zoom out to 30,000. Sarah, can you help me with yours? How was love expressed by Christ in that circumstance? And, and, and what does that clarity, what does that afford them? Okay, Sarah said just being clear in his, in his dialogue with the Pharisees. How does that show love? Okay, by being truthful to them. And again, I think, remember what I asked you guys about the telescope thing? He had eternity in mind, didn't he? As he shared the gospel with the Pharisees, correcting them, he's given them opportunity to repent. What greater love is there than that? Praise the Lord. What about the turning over the, the tables, uh, the money changer tables? I'd say the same thing. If you were in there selling that stuff and some guy comes up and flips this thing over and you had heard this guy's a godly man and he's a great teacher, you know that he's performing miracles, you'd say, wait a minute, what am I doing here? It gives them opportunity to reflect on their actions. You better believe that's love. So when I say that love does not always turn the other cheek, love does not ex- go the, always go the extra mile, that's the kind of thing that I'm talking about. I'm trying to ha- help us get a perspective on this, on how Jesus acted in love as well as how we can. My point is that Jesus, being full of the Holy Spirit, acted in love in every situation, albeit each one looked a little bit different. Uh, you know, Caleb brought up when he, when he, uh, when, when he went before a pilot, man, What does it say? It says he was silent before his accusers. He didn't say a word. That's the kind of love that you and I are looking at. But it's also love that's going to speak truth to the Pharisees. It's going to speak truth to this community. And we're part of that. And the dynamics of figuring that out is what we're going to talk about today. Romans 5.10 says... For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? Now, this might not be a perfect analogy, so give me a little grace. When the cross was fulfilled, God opened up the bank of reconciliation. When God called Matthew Rojek by his Son, through the Holy Spirit, giving me the gift of faith, offering me mercy, and Matthew Rojek responded because of his drawn my heart, I dipped into that bank of reconciliation and received that for myself. Now hear what I'm saying. The bank account, in some measure, doesn't do us any good until we tap into it. And the only way we can tap into it as we're drawn to the Father by the Son through the Holy Spirit, given the gift of faith offered mercy. So when it says, even while we we're enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, how much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved from His life. The point is this. When we step from darkness into the kingdom of His dear Son and into light, we are not only reconciled, we are regenerated. And we're in the middle of the book of Acts and we constantly are seeing the Holy Spirit rising up with power in these people's lives. Think of Stephen. They stoned him. And what did he do? And, and I don't this is just me, but when I, when I see him, I envision him smiling. When he's getting hit in the side of the head with rocks and he says, Father, don't lay this charge against them. 
It's because he was regenerated. That couldn't have happened before the day of Pentecost. You and I are living after the day of Pentecost. If you're a believer, you have the Holy Spirit in you. You've been reconciled. You have a regenerated heart. So that we can love our enemies. So that we can know the right way to love our enemies. Do we flip the table over? Or do we stand silent before our accusers? So Romans 7, 15 through 24. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I that do it, but sin that dwells in me. Now here, here's the kicker. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. That's the heart that's been regenerated. You and I... On the inner man, delight in the law of God. We delight to do his law. But what does Paul say? But I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. And then what does he say? Wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? And what does he say? I thank God, the Father, that through the Lord Jesus Christ, I've been delivered from this body of sin so that the regenerate heart can become more of the norm as it battles over the flesh and over sin. Philippians 4.13, Paul says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now here's the point that I'm trying to make. If you're born again, you have the Holy Spirit, you've been reconciled, you have a regenerated heart, It is a natural thing, spiritually and supernaturally, for you and I to love our enemies. Because we've been born again, and because we have the Holy Spirit. Now there's a dynamic tension there, as Paul says. It's an inherent, maybe maybe that's a better word, it's an inherent ability to be able to do that. It's not necessarily always natural, Because our mind gets in the way if it's not being transformed daily by the renewing of our mind. If we're not daily crying out to the Spirit. Because as uh, as testimony to some of the prayer, prayer requests, as well as testimony to living in Detroit, this is a hard life. It's hard to love your enemies. There's a constant battle that Paul's talking about going back and forth. Man, I, I do the things I don't want to do, and then I don't do the things that I want to do, but I delight, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But, but evil is always close. Man, there is a dynamic tension between the innate ability because of the Holy Spirit in us to love our enemies and the idea that we want to reject them because we've been offended. And that's where reading the Word, that's where washing our minds, that's where being constantly regenerated, that's where discipleship comes in. So you've got another perspective, someone talking to you and saying, hey Matt, you know, I'm not quite sure you're seeing this the right way. That's why zooming out to 30,000, if you zoom out to 30,000 feet, and we see eternity at the end, come on! 
Come on, we've got eternity. We've escaped hell. Man, that's good news. 2 Timothy 4, 6-8, Paul says, For I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I've fought the good fight, I've finished my course, I've kept the faith. Henceforth there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. And not to me only, but to all of them that love his appearing. That almost sounds arrogant. He says, man, I've done it. I've completed my course. And that's because Paul knows that he's born again, and from his regenerate heart, he's been able to do those things. This that he just said can be your and my testimony that we have fought the fight, we have finished the course, and then the only thing left over is for a crown to be placed on our head by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What a great testimony. Galatians 2.20 says, I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So again, what's Paul saying here? Paul's talking about his death. Paul's talking about his spiritual resurrection. And what was the third one I had? And he's talking about his regeneration Christ. I am crucified with Christ. As you and I come to recognize the cross as truth, that we need a Savior, we die. And then we are regenerated by the Holy Spirit. I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ that liveth in me. And I, the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Why does Paul have to live by faith? Because of Romans seven fifteen through 25, there is a constant battle going on for your and my affections, for your and my attentions, for the outworking of this regenerate heart, whether or not it's going to bear righteous fruit or whether or not we're going to demand our rights and we're going to fight like Paul did and kick against the pricks. Or are we going to step back with a view of eternity, understand that you and I have been forgiven an enormous debt, so much so that God himself had to die for you and I to pay that price. Matthew 5, 43-48, Sandra read it earlier. Thank you, Sandra. Um, is this an impossible request to love our enemies? Or is this another marker that causes us to reflect back on the cross and our helplessness. We know that it's not an impossible request. So just like the law, just like the cross, just like our daily walk, we are consistently being reminded that we got to go back to the cross. Not only to die, but because there is where we received life. And that's the point that I wanted to make today. Again, as we're in the book of Acts, we're consistently talking about the Holy Spirit. So what was the purpose of Jesus telling us to love our enemies? And I'm going to have to read them from up here because I think mine are a little bit different. To demonstrate its impossibility without the gospel. Again, we just kind of repeated that. We've got to go to the cross to recognize the impossibility of you and I loving our enemies. That's just not going to happen without the cross. To illustrate the gospel's conflict with the world. You know, the Bible says that you and I are strangers and pilgrims in this land because we're, we're just different. They hated Christ. 
Therefore, they're going to hate us because we're followers of Christ. The world and the gospel are diametrically opposed. And if we're not paying attention to that, we're going to get frustrated. We're going to wonder why you know, people are angry at us or, or there's just this constant grind and constant draw and, and drain in our lives. Again, I, I just say it, especially living in the hood. When we look around us, it's going to be draining if we don't recognize that it's going to just be a constant conflict with the world. And then also to illustrate the gospel conflict with religion, all other religions, including the Pharisees' version of what the Hebrew Scripture said. And lastly, it's to show the otherworldliness of the gospel to his creation. And his creation is us, it's the church, but more importantly, it's those outside the church. You know, think about some of the cool missionary stories you've read that are just like, man, just way off the charts and how the people got opportunity to recognize regenerated hearts living for the sake of the gospel, not for the sake of religion, not for the sake of some laws or some commands that we're going to follow, but for the sake of Jesus Christ. So what are the possibilities... What possibilities are there when we live this love thy enemies command out? We create an environment ripe for repentance. Proverbs 26, 28 says, for lack of wood, the fire goes out. When we're in conflict and it's going back and forth, if we quit the conflict and we don't put the log on the fire, fire's going to go out. Proverbs 15.1 says, soft answer turns away wrath. As we're bid on or accused by our enemies, instead of revengeful words towards them, we offer them a soft answer. Then without retaliation, we give our enemies no further ammunition to attack us. And their guilt is their own, and it's not muddied by our additional sin. And they've got to answer to the Lord for that. I'm going to give you... Um, a story from my life just to to maybe help give you guys an idea. When I started my business 24 years ago, um, I paid a guy to basically apprentice me. His name was Matt. Matt had a son, Matt. So this might get complicated. (laughs) So as Matt is talking to Matt Sr. about Matt Jr., Matt Sr. tells me that Matt Jr., high school senior, they had a conversation. (laughs) Okay. Did I say that right? So Matt Sr. tells Matt Jr. two months before graduating high school, he says, hey, Matt, I want to let you know that when you graduate high school, you've got one month to find another place to live. He says, it's been very obvious to you that you have no desire to live under your mother and my desire, under the Lord's commands, and because you've just rebelled uh, in our household, you need to find another place to live. And man, like the first that came to my mind was, man, buddy, that is harsh. If you're thinking that your son's not a believer and you're throwing him out into the harsh, cruel world, you're not going to be able to have influence over him. And Matt's response was, it obviously hasn't done anything right now, has it? So what Matt told me, and and I don't know if this is scriptural or not, it works for me, is Matt stepped out of the way. And I I don't mean that as flippantly as I said that. I hope you guys know that. Matt Sr. stepped out of the way and let God the Father deal directly with with Matt Jr. So instead of Matt fighting and haggling with his dad, guess who he had to fight and haggle with? He had to fight with the father. 
And basically, Matt set him out there for God the Father to chastise him and discipline him and give him opportunity to repent. So that's what I'm saying is when we don't give, we don't muddy the waters in our relationship with the enemy, we can step back and their sin is all on their shoulders and God has greater opportunity, I believe, to deal with them directly because it's not going through us. We're not muddying the waters with our additional sin. See, the goodness of God enacted to the violator by the child of God is a tool that God can use for the repentance of the enemy. Again, just think about a soft answer turns away wrath. You know, someone slaps you across the face and you, you smile and you give them the other side of the, your cheek. Man, that's going to blow his mind. And it gives, I just believe it gives the Holy Spirit another opportunity in this guy's mind. You know, again, when Jesus turned over the, the tables, what happened to those guys? They had to think through what was going on. When you and I do that to our enemies, they got to think, who is this person? This guy's nuts. And it gives God an opportunity. It gives them a time of reflection. And D, when we are not overcome by the enemy, we don't give control over to our flesh or Satan. We can then once again see God's hand of grace in his promises kept to us as sons and daughters of God. They become markers and trophies and great landmarks of remembrances for us to see the fruits of our obedience played out well and especially God's faithfulness to perform his word to creation. Markers and remembrances that when we do the right thing in obedience, we can remember God answered my prayer. God redeemed the situation. I see regeneration in my life. My wife has a charm bracelet that's got about 20 charms on it. Every charm is connected to a great sorrow in Betty's life. But connected with that sorrow is God's redemptive act. And that's why she's got a charm. So if Betty's blue, she goes on Saturday morning, picks that baby up, puts it on, and she walks around the house tingling. Because those are markers in her life where God had brought or allowed sorrow to come in her life and Betty would pray and ask the Lord, man, get me through this thing and Betty would see the redemptive hand of God in it. So much so that there's a specific marker. I mean, she's writing a journal to give to our kids. You and I are on a journey to eternity and along that way we can either have markers of hope or markers of frustration. When Jesus calls us to love our enemies and we love our enemy and we see him come to repentance, I mean, how cool is that? Can you imagine having that marker in your life where a great sorrow was turned into a great joy? You know, I think you guys, well, some of you guys know, um, after my first year of college, I was out west, had to hitchhike home from Oregon to Michigan. First guy who picked me up shared the gospel with me. I mean, just flat out share the gospel with me. And I probably was disrespectful, and I probably said, yeah, I read my Bible, blah, 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 blah. This guy doesn't know anything about me. He lives in Oregon. But can you imagine the look on his face in heaven when he sees me? That the seeds that he has sown to people, like, that he just picked up a hitchhiker. You know, I'm bar- you know again, you don't want to talk to people. That. He shared the gospel with me, and those were the first seeds that grew in my heart. Three months later, I went to a Bible study, raised my hand, said the sinner's prayer, Favum. God regenerated me, and I've been on a great journey ever since.
The call to love your enemy has a number of facets, and I've been pretty specific to try not to define the outplaying of how that looks in your life. Christ has given us a command as well as the how-tos in a general sense, but as spirit-filled believers, our call as individuals are to read the scriptures, to hear the voice of God, apply those scriptures in our lives, to listen to the Holy Spirit and his call, and how we are to interact with our enemies. Do we speak truth to them instead of turning the other cheek so that we offer them seeds of potential repentance? Or do we turn the other cheek? And I can't tell you that answer. That's the whole point of you being filled with the Holy Spirit. That's why it was so important that Christ says, man, it's imperative that I go away. Because if I don't go away, the Father can't send the Holy Spirit who will guide you and lead you into all the truth. Again, we're in the book of Acts. We just consistently are hitting the Holy Spirit and discussing Him. That's the point of this. The regenerate heart led by the Holy Spirit, you guys will be guided on how to love your enemies. Suffice it to say that when we love our enemies, it's a command of Jesus and inferred in that command is the ability to do so. We've discussed the new life we've received and how it's lived out strictly under the obedience and power of the Holy Spirit in Christ Jesus and by faith. It's for our benefit and the watching world who are looking for flesh and blood Christianity played out in front of their eyes, not the prostituted version exhibited by many of today's churches. You know, man, I was going over this again this morning. You know, one of the things that came to my mind and is just like these... Just money-grubbing televangelists. And if that's what the world sees as Christianity, man, we're hopeless. they got to see you and me. they got to see flesh and blood played out, and that flesh and blood's going to take its toll on you and I. It just plain is. It's going to take its toll on you and I. The Bible says very clearly we got to die daily. Paul says, man, I buffet my body daily. Paul says, I run the race. Jesus, the captain of our salvation, was made what? Perfect. How? Through suffering. Are we going to be any different? Now, the difference that I see, and I'm still trying to wrestle with, is, is again, it seems to me that Jesus is telling us that there is a natural part of a supernatural Holy Spirit living in us, that it doesn't have to be this just constant like grit and grind your teeth and bear the enemy aspect because we know what eternity affords you and I. And we see the example of Christ Jesus. We see the example of Stephen the martyr. We see the example of Corey Tinboom of Elizabeth Elliot, not hating her, na- or not hating her enemies. We preach the cross and we must embrace it as Christ calls us to die to ourselves doing that which only appears right when eternity is taken into consideration. That's why we got to renew our mind. That's why the word of God has to be preeminent. Our minds have to be transformed because this just doesn't make sense. Why would I want to do something like that? And me bear the brunt for that guy's stupidity? We find victory when the enemy repents. I mean, that, 
That's not unheard of. That's the whole point. We find victory when we act, not react, but when we act in obedience. Again, to me, this is a marker in our life where we can say, Father, I saw regeneration in my life today. Thank you for that. I know I'm your child. I want to exhibit more of that. Help me keep growing. We're building spiritual muscles. We find victory when we see victory over our flesh. And again, see the victory of regeneration. Now here's the kicker. We even win if our enemies do not repent. And God's justice, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, is enacted. So in closing, we can love our enemies. We can turn the other cheek. We can choose not to retaliate and give the Holy Spirit opportunity to bear fruit in due season. That's a key word, in due season. Not only, our, not only in our lives, but possibly our enemies' lives as well. As sowers, it is our joy to sow seeds of the gospel and its corresponding acts of divine love. We don't know the time ordained by God in which we might gain victory over our flesh or where we might see our enemy come to grips with the cross and the gospel that's calling him to repentance. So I would exhort you to remember Paul's cry, who shall deliver me from this body of this death? But I thank God through my Lord Jesus Christ. As we reflect this Lenten season on the gospel's call, not only to death, but as importantly to the life in Christ and the power brought to us by God's indwelling spirit, I just exhort you to consider that. And lastly, as we're in the book of Acts and we see clearly both these elements, the call to death and the call to life enabled by the Holy Spirit, We have this hope in this new man that's been reconciled to God by the death of his holy son. So rejoice, my dear brothers and sisters, that Jesus Christ has called us in his service and enabled us to love our enemies to the glory of our soon coming king. Would you bow your heads? Father, you are a great God. We are grateful that you have given us your Holy Spirit if we've become your children and in your goodness you have called us to repentance. Sometimes with gentle, kind, wooing words and sometimes with chastisement you've called us. But we know that you know eternity and you know it's for our betterment. It's for our good. And ultimately it's for your glory and honor. So, Lord, we receive with joy the command to love our enemies, knowing fully well you've enabled us and you've set the path for us as an example. When you flip the tables over, when you turn the other cheek, when you didn't respond to Pilate or your accusers, when you dipped your hand in the bowl with he who would betray you, Father, seal our hearts with your word. Cause us as individuals, Father, to humbly submit our lives to you. To seek after the cross that you would have us to bear in loving our enemies. To do so with joy, 
knowing that eternity is ours. We love you, Father, in Jesus' name.